0: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Much excitement on the show today, as uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've been speaking to people from Chorley um, because they're playing, uh, they're doing very well in the FA Cup at the moment. They're playing Wolves uh, in the fourth round later this week. And we've spoken to the football manager, we've spoken to a teacher, a student, a pub, a, a vicar. Uh, And today, we managed to twin the show with Chorley. We got the Deputy Leader of the Council on, a small ceremony was held, and now Chorley on Times Radio is twinned with Chorley in Lancashire. And we'll check in with, whenever we want to find out what what things are like, whether it's in a school or a hospital or a a pub, uh, then we'll check in with Chorley. Also on today's show, I spoke to Lord Fowler, the Lord Speaker about how how we might go about becoming a member of the House of Lords. Everyone seems to be doing these days, and why uh, why he thinks there should be fewer uh, people on the red leather benches. Uh, but first, our columnist panel. It's Thursday, so it must be Web Cram. It's Esther Webber and Robert Crampton. Let's start with uh, with all of that. Then um, uh, Joe Biden, Boris Johnson. How are they going to get on? Um, uh, we we understand that Donald Trump has left him a letter, but we don't know what it says. Uh, and there's this question of is Joe. Biden Biden woke. Let's take a listen to what happened when Sky News asked Boris Johnson that exact question.
3: I, I can't comment on that. I, 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 but what I know is that he's a fervent believer in the transatlantic uh, alliance. And, um, uh, and that's a great thing. And a believer in uh, a lot of the things that uh, we want to achieve together. And, you know, insofar as um, you know, nothing wrong with being being all woke, if, uh, but I've, what I can tell you is that uh, I think that it's, it's very, very important for uh, everybody uh, to, and I'm certainly I, I will put myself in the category of people who believe that uh, it's important to stick up for your, uh, your history, your, 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 your traditions and, uh, thing, and your, uh, your, your values and things you believe in. <laughs>
0: There's just something very funny about just a question completely throwing a politician off course like that. Um, Esther, does it matter um, whether or not uh, Joe Biden is woke? I mean, I thought what was really striking, I thought, about that clip is it does expose. On the one hand, Boris Johnson has got lots of things in, in potentially in common with uh, Joe Biden on the environment and trade and that sort of thing. But if he's going to try and continue to fight the culture war back home, it's a, it's a, there's a tension there for him at the very least.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's right because, um, wh- whatever you like to call it, uh, Joe Biden has been quite unabashed in his campaigning, putting civil rights at sort of centre in his agenda, including gay and trans rights. Um, and that is uncomfortable territory for the Prime Minister because. It's something a lot of his ministers like to talk about and say, almost kind of show off how unlike they are. And, uh, and he sort of said he'd put himself in that category too, saying, so, you know, to be proud of tradition and things like this. Um, so it does have an area of tension and maybe not one he'll be sort of seeking to emphasize.
0: Without being too simplistic about this, Robert, it's basically the tension of Boris Johnson trying to, you know, appeal on the world stage uh, in one direction, but hold on to what he sees as the uh, um, the good people of the Red Wall who delivered him that uh, election victory last time round. And we see, you know, the, the likes of Ben Bradley, I can't remember, he's an MP for Mansfield, I think, uh, you know, those the, the, the MPs who spend an awful lot of time tweeting uh, angrily about pronouns and um, uh, bias Ooh. training and all that sort of stuff um do, I think, uh, yeah. sorry go on no no carry on what, you, what you, basically what you well, make no, of, I, of I that think, oh, I, know, I know
1: what you mean but i think that's slightly unfair on the red wall uh i think a lot of that opposition will be coming from solidly uh traditional tory mps in the south and you know the the, the, the sort of people who uh I've been arguing, I've been getting hot under the collar about this in saloon bars for, for you know, in the dog and duck for, for decades. Uh, so it's a bit unfair on the people of Mansfield. It's more, maybe it's more like the people of Surrey. Uh, yeah. However, I take your point. I mean, and Boris is, it's a, you know, he's, he's supposed to be articulate. Uh, but I mean, that was almost Prescottian, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> it was he, was, he was, it wasn't quite that bad. I think the grammar just about held together, but the but the ums and ahs were were, were were pretty uh pretty 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 legendary. Uh yeah, I mean the point is that the Democratic Party uh which uh, Biden's got to look after is well to the left of the Conservative Party which Boris has got to look after. Uh and that is a definite discrepancy. I mean you got what you got to think is if if Boris was still a daily telegraph columnist, what sort of col- columns would he be writing about Joe Biden and the Democrats? And I guess it uh, He'd be making great capital and great fun out of uh, a lot of their stances on various issues, wouldn't he?
0: I imagine so. He, yeah, you can imagine and, the and column and his, about
1: his and his the members and his MPs would be lapping it up. So yeah, yeah. That's where I think that's where he's coming from. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a potential problem. It's not necessarily a massive problem, but it might it might uh, it might stand in the way of uh, of a good relation. And, and also, uh, I mean. Boris is carrying the burden of of the Biden's predecessor having called him Britain's Trump. Uh, I don't think he is Britain's Trump because I think Trump is pretty unique, but that is something he's going to have to overcome.
0: And I suppose that's if you were in number 10 right now, that you'd probably be advising Boris Johnson on how to prove that he definitely isn't Britain Trump um, and not falling back on some of that old stuff. But Esther, the, we had the, the strange spectacle of um, Robert Jenrick, who... Uh, our colleague Patrick McGuire in the Red Box uh, Morning Email this morning described as the least was it the least interesting and ideological cabinet minister you could think of. Even he was going after what he called town hall militants and woke worthies. Um, mm. uh, f- just, just randomly find this out in a column with the Sunday Telegraph. Uh, mm. Esther, what would you be telling Boris Johnson to do right now in the next few days? Um, because there's a there's a danger they overthink this and it, he ends, he he pops up in the weekend papers doing something which actually causes a massive row with America.
2: Yeah, I I think you know, just stick to stick to the stuff we have in common, stick to you know, the welcome message. This is just the beginning of potentially quite a long uh, alliance between Boris Johnson and Joe Biden. And um, the the kinds of things that Robert Jenrick was talking about at the weekend, um, which obviously people will get fired up if you start a conversation about statues, it's all very well. But I think a lot of the Red Wall voters who uh, the government is so keen to keep on site um, think there are bigger priorities. You know, there are, <laughs> There are bigger fish to fry, and talking about kind of economic prosperity and potential trade is probably more of a winner, um, I think, looking ahead.
0: Yeah, the housing secretary may be talking about you know making sure people have got a roof over their heads rather than breaking over statues again. Might make, make more yeah. sense. And another tension that Boris Johnson faces is what what's he going to do now he's done Brexit? Uh, there was so much uh, debate and tension and <laughs> rows and battles over getting Brexit done. Now it is done. What does he do with it? Do we? Uh, you, Basically, stay in line with the EU and, uh, and enjoy the, the fruits of, of uh, trade with them or head off to what's been called Singapore on the Thames, which is the idea of, you know, you cut, uh, you cut red tape, you cut regulation and let, let business sort of let rip. Uh, the story of the times today, the EU is prepared to ease post-Brexit border friction. It's uh, not so easy to say. Uh, Post Brexit border friction, if Britain drops its plan to create a Singapore on the Thames, so uh, there'll be fewer checks at the border. If if Britain agrees not to go for go for broken and cut lots of regulation and diverge yeah. from the EU, this is a question which has never really been addressed, um, uh, Robert. As far as I can tell, what what is the point of what does what do we now we've got all this freedom? What do we want to do with it?
1: Well, quite, and this is where the red wall does come into play, I think, because if you're if you're it's serious about the deregulation and, and bending the working time directive and those elements of what you certainly used to be called the social chapter, uh, then that does affect the uh, the people who uh, switched to uh, you know from Labour to Tory in those seats in those Northern and Midland seats, and they are not going to like that at all. I mean that might go down well uh, in parts of the South, uh, it, that it will it will not play in those seats that uh, gave Boris his majority so he needs to think very carefully about that uh also have, has he got brexit done because i mean he's got it done formally but it, it's a it's a little bit of a mess at the moment i was always uh, uh i was a remainer but i was always reasonably optimistic about i didn't think there would be sort of catastrophic uh uh implications but they, it's not good is it for uh people having their cheese sandwiches confiscated by french customs and scottish fish not been able to be exported, and people having to sp- paying more for deliveries from stuff imported from the EU, and some couriers saying that they're not going to ship stuff here. Uh, that isn't really. I mean, that's there still needs to be a, some serious negotiations done on that, on those points.
0: Uh, and Esther, uh, somebody was asking the question, "Why did we leave?" Was Ian Duncan? Sorry, sir Ian Duncan Smith, who was mm. speaking of the House of Commons, is and you you wrote about um, how the Quiet Man was turning up the volume again.
2: Yeah. I mean, when you um, talk about the Red Bull and the new intake, who are obviously the kind of fresh flavour of the Conservative Party, um, I thought it was interesting that a lot of the ideas that kind of dominated the party at the moment were were articulated <laughs> by someone who... You really can't think of someone less fashionable than Ian Duncan Smith. Um, <laughs> But he, if anyone can't up... t-
0: t- text in the usual way, 8 7 trouble start your message with the word Anyone less fashionable than you, <laughs> Duncan Smith? <laughs> yeah,
2: because, I mean, not just Euroscepticism, which obviously he was a proponent of, but the kind of focus on welfare and um, how, how we think about welfare and the job it should be doing. And also this kind of moral emphasis, um, which he brings to questions like China, obviously not a big issue with the Biden administration and how we position ourselves on that. Um, so it just seemed to me he was sort of an un- unlikely poster boy for some of the big ideas in the Conservative <laughs> Party at the moment.
0: Who'd have uh, thought? Who'd
2: have thought? <laughs> I suppose you could say that Jacob
1: Rees-Mogg was less fashionable, but then we're all sitting at home watching kind of Regency period dramas, so maybe he's actually kind of man of the moment.
0: Yeah, and he did—he did, uh, he did a sort of. Even Jacob Rees-Mogg did have that brief stage of being sort of, you know, cultish. Uh, that's well, with an exactly. L. It could be um, consuming could yeah. Bridgerton, couldn't you? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think he did have his face uh, on some cloth David. bags. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. That seem that does seem to have blown over. Um, uh, just finally, uh, Robert, let's talk about your coll- that was what Esther wrote about this week. What did you write? What What was your column on this week? My column.
1: Well, there's one coming up which is about walking in lockdown, but the one I wrote about. Uh, well, actually, what I wrote about uh, yesterday was probably more interesting. Was that about the whole issue of class and people being misidentifying mis- their own class? This is a on the back of a survey from the LSE saying that a whole bunch of actors who were actually impeccably middle class were. Uh, went around saying that they were working class. So a bunch (laughs) of us wrote about our class origins in the Times.
0: Yeah, and what what was your, because we we talked about it briefly earlier in the week. I could be middle class, but because I come from
1: Hull, uh, slightly flat as I used to be, uh, people always assume that uh, my dad was like a coal miner or a docker, and he was actually an MEP. (laughs) 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 Very uh, good. Explain to people, grew up in in a Urban semi with two in the south. They, there's an assumption that the middle class does not exist north of the Trent.
0: Exactly. Yeah, everyone in the north has got you know a whippet and a flat cap and all that. Just before I let you both go, what what do you think Boris Johnson should buy Joe Biden as a gift to try and win him over, Esther?
2: I don't know. Maybe some potatoes. Probably um like the Irish.
0: Very good yeah. potatoes. That, that that thats playing into stereotypes, but you know, I don't think the prime <laughs> is averse to that. What about you, Robert?
1: Oh well, he's got rid of the bust of Churchill. Maybe Boris should send him a bust of Trump, and he just could look at it and think, whatever he did, I'd do the
0: opposite. That would, <laughs> that would work. Esther Webber and Robert Crampton. Then, of course, you can read them both if you get yourself a Times digital subscription. Just go to the Times, uh, click on any story you'd like the look of, put your details in, and as a bonus, right now. You can get your first month for free. Up next is my chat with Lord Fowler. This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, and now we can bring you my interview with Lord Fowler, the Speaker of the House of Lords. Before we begin and get stuck into the sort of um the, the latest controversies, let's go right back to the first principles, if you like. What is the point of the House of Lords?
3: The point of the House of Lords is that so this is, I'm getting a back feed on this. But the point of the House of Lords is really um, that we um, scrutinise legis- all legislation which goes through. And if we didn't do that, then the result would be that you would get some very incomplete and very uh, bad legislation. We do literally hundreds of amendments. I mean, that's one. And point two is that we hold the government to account. So I think all the opinion polls show uh, that um, if the House of Lords is valid for anything, it's for their experience. And they like the idea um, of there being a second chamber um, which can uh, cast an eye over what is being done. And if they disagree, uh, then they can challenge it. But as you know, it very rarely goes to a a vote. But when it does go to a vote, uh, it is on very crucial issues.
0: And what is your role as the Lord Speaker?
3: My, my role is first in the House itself um, uh, and uh, sitting on the woolsack rather like uh, Lindsay does in the House of Commons, but also uh, I'm chairman of the House of Lords Commission, um, which is progressively uh, running the uh, uh, House of Lords. And we have um, a whole range of committees and duties. Um, um, under that so it's both uh, administrative uh, and it's also political as well and to some extent to some extent and I don't claim this uh, to be total I try to speak for the members of the House of Lords I think I'm about the only person who is directly elected Um, and therefore I think I have uh, perhaps that authority in saying that. So obviously, uh, we, I,
0: I touched on it, that over Christmas, we had this, this round where Boris Johnson announced uh, was it another dozen or so uh, new peers, including the former Tory donor, uh, the Tory donor Peter Cruddas, uh, amongst others. Um, what is the right number for the, the, House, the House of Lords to do uh, its job properly, do you think?
3: Well, I thought that Terry Burns got it about right at about 600. Um, we certainly don't need the present total, which is you know, one side of 800. Um, Probably 817 rather than 792. Uh, But, I mean, let's not quarrel about uh, uh, that number. But it is around the 800 mark, which is, you know, markedly in in advance of the House of Commons. And I think the important point to remember is this, that when Terry Burns and his committee did their report, um, I welcomed it. We had a debate uh, in Uh, The House of Lords and the House of Lords welcomed it. And most important of all, um, it was um, uh, welcomed, I think, by the Prime Minister at the time, Mrs May, who said that she was now going to commit herself to a course of moderation. Um, That's the first time a Prime Minister has ever said that sort of thing. Uh, But of course, a change of Prime Minister, and we now go back to where we were before. And I think that that is a vast pity, uh, it's not a political point. It's simply a point about uh, seeking to organise and run the House of Com, uh, run the House of Lords uh, in the best possible way. We don't need 800 people uh, in the House of Lords, and that includes, of course, people who don't actually do very much in any event. Don't do anything at all, really. Um, most of are hard working, but the people who 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 don't work, um, I, I think, cast a uh, a shadow over the over the rest of us so I think everything points to a, a lower house of 600 you could argue for 500 but 600 would be fine but eight hundred, eight 820 that's too many I,
0: I sense that when you're talking about the people who don't uh, uh who've got the title but don't do any work for it I sense you've got people in any, any particular people in, you've got in mind when you're saying that
3: <laughs> you're not, Matt, you're not going to tempt me down that particular road. Um, I'm a speaker. I have to uh, respect all my members in the uh, uh, same way. But you only have to look at the uh, attendance um, attendance uh, records uh, to see who who I'm talking about, and the voting records. It's all been a bit confused, of course, now uh, because of the new system. Uh, but consistently, we've had uh, uh, people uh, quite, you know, quite very well-known people um, who haven't made much contribution uh, to uh, the House of Lords and wouldn't make any bones about it, that they are not working members of the House of Lords. Well, with respect, I don't think... Uh, I mean, membership of the House of Lords gives great privileges. And the first privilege it gives is that you're a member of the legislature, that you're passing laws uh, that apply to the whole of the public. I mean, not to turn up, not turn your back on it. I mean, seems to me a complete negation uh, of the of the whole idea.
0: And it's that word because it's got sort of slightly tangled up. There's sort of two things. There's there's partly taking a role in legis- the legislative process, going through laws and making sure they're fit for purpose. But it's also just you know it's a it's a it's a supercharged gong. It's one up from a a, a damehood or, or or a knighthood, um, and and so it ends up being a sort of reward. You know, it's have the title and all that sort of stuff. And when you've got lots of party donors. You know, in the last round we had not just the Tory party donor, Peter Crudus, but we had the Prime Minister's brother, uh, his friend, the, the newspaper owner, Evgeny Lebedev. Just doing all that, rather than thinking who are the best people to, to look at legislation, rather than being a sort of reward for being, you know, particularly supportive or just friends or related to the Prime Minister. Does all that bring the House of Lords into disrepute, do you think?
3: Yes, of course it does. And um, uh, it's, um, it, it is one of the uh fundamental criticisms i mean uh, there was a proposal uh, some years ago uh, uh, to have non-parliamentary peers so if you wanted to give a reward for public service or whatever it happened to be um uh, then you could do that but it didn't mean that you went into uh, the house of lords and had a vote um in um uh, in in all these issues that uh, comes Uh, not even the Americans do that the Americans are big into contributions and all that sort of thing but there's no way that you can actually uh, by making big contributions uh, get a a seat in the House of Lords or help to get a seat uh, in the House of Lords I must be careful about uh, what I uh, say as far as that is concerned I mean all that needs to be uh, cleaned up frankly Um, it uh, doesn't do us um, any good and it doesn't, uh, I think, reflect well um, on the government um, either. And when you, have, you know, when you do have a situation where the Appointments uh, Commission make a proposal and then that is just simply uh, ignored, then I think we get into really difficult, uh, difficult territory. So, I mean, there are a lot of issues to be cleared up about the House of Lords. I, I, I mean, I don't um, deny that, but I'm a reformer of the House of Lords, um, I'm not someone um, who wishes to see it abolished. I want to see a second uh, second chamber, but I do not deny that we've got you know, a number of big obstacles um, in our way. But not, they're, not, they're not obstacles that can't be overcome. Of course we can overcome them. We need the will to do it. And I would say my, my slight complaint about the government is that I don't think this government is actually taking the House of Lords very seriously. And it's about time that they did.
0: How would you go about whittling it down then if if the prime minister did suddenly get gripped by the fact that this, this situation has got a bit out of hand and set, picked up the phone to you and said, well, how should we do that? I'm fine. Let's go for 500 or 600. How would you how would you, would you would you would you scrap everyone and start again? How How would you, you who, who would have the job of telling the 200 odd that their services were no longer required to make sure that you had, you know, people who know what they're doing going through the legislation of the day and not just friends and donors and former colleagues of the prime minister?
3: Well, I think that one way or another, you've got to have some kind of uh, uh, inquiry um, uh, into it, because there's a whole range of uh, uh, issues to be uh, considered. And it, I would much prefer it to be an independent um, review uh, of the House of Lords, rather than one done uh, internally in Number 10 or in, in some other uh, government uh, department. I don't see any way any way round that. But I think the public should be involved. I think it should be as transparent um, as possible. And what one doesn't want is simply one one issue uh, picked off the shelf. Uh, You could say retirement age. Let's have retirement age. And uh, that is fine if you put it together with all the other uh, issues that uh, uh, come uh, uh, with with, with retirement age and with uh, the reform of the House of Lords. But don't just pick down one issue and say that that is a total uh, solution uh, because it, it isn't remotely. So it's up to the government, obviously, how they uh, proceed, if they want to uh, proceed uh, at all. But I don't think the present system, in my view, uh, uh, can't be sustained uh, forever. And uh, I mean, you know, the things like uh, uh, party donors and things of that kind, which also, we just need to have rules about that um um which um which are enforced uh and which fight i don't think i don't think anybody in the public would actually really seriously debate that that is the case and so let us just do it uh and uh, just not sort of leave it to one side and with occasional uh, leaks or uh, things of leak, semi leaks um Uh, from government saying this is what we're going to do or this is what we're not going to do. I mean, we need to be much more open about it and look at the House of Lords. And if I could just say one one more word, Matt, Um, most of the members of the House of Lords are hardworking, very hardworking. The great thing we have is experience. We've got experience, law, medicine, nursing, armed forces, media, the whole thing. And um, I think that the range of abilities that I've seen here are as good and, frankly, better uh, than many of the uh, range of abilities that I've seen over the last, uh, well, certainly the last 30 years in the Commons. And uh, I think that uh, we need to preserve the very good uh, and uh, not uh, tar everyone uh, with the, uh, uh, the brush of what we've been talking about.
0: Just when you talk about there being rules, do you think there should be a rule that if someone's donated a certain amount to a political party, they can't take a seat in the House of Lords?
3: Well, I think something in that area is 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 called for. It needs to be clearer than it is um, um, at the moment. Um, you could either you could either do that, or you could put a uh, an absolute block, absolute limit on how many how much uh, people could uh, could contribute. But the, what what you're proposing. Is a very interesting way um, of doing it. I haven't any firm views on that. Uh, it, that's obviously a matter uh, for uh, the government and for the political leaders. Uh, but I think it is, uh, every, every time uh, there is a row about a party donor or supposed party donor uh, kind of coming in, we, we go around the same old course. And it's about time we got it reconciled one way or another.
0: If someone's listening to this and they want to be an MP, it's pretty clear about how you go about doing that. You can, either, you know, you can run as an independent, which might not be terribly successful. Or you can become a party candidate and stand for election. If someone's listening to this and they want to be a peer uh, to take part in the legislative uh, process of the country, how would they go about doing that?
3: <laughs> That's a very good question, <laughs> and there's no clear answer to it. I mean, the fact is that we have. Uh, uh, three major parties uh, in the House of Lords. They all have their different ways of uh, um, nominating uh, peers because um, it is the parties in the end who who, who make nominations on uh, most of the members apart from the crossbenchers. Um, And so it is a matter of um, being respected and being valued um, in, in, in in that way. Um, I don't know if there's any other way that one could actually uh, do this you can make uh, applications you can make an application uh, uh, to become a a peer and become a crossbencher Uh, but there haven't been many of those that have actually gone through as it happens so it's all, it's really down to the parties and number 10 I mean who is chosen and you can't, I mean quite a lot of people you can't really um, I mean most I think you, you can't uh, really uh, challenge I mean you could say you know there's another person who's just as good but I mean all life is full of those kind of decisions but it's not, like, uh, it's not like the days that I remember as a member of parliament when I went to a selection committee and I put myself forward to the selection committee and then we went from round three to round two to the final and finally uh, you became the candidate and finally uh, you became e- elected I'm Frankly, I'm not quite sure whether that is quite such an ideal situation, position, uh, as some people um, imagine. But it's obviously the Lords is very different to that.
0: Uh, I want to ask you about that because you, you've touched on your, your long career in uh, politics. And I wonder um, how, how you think politics has changed, whether for the better or, or the worse in, in that time?
3: Oh, I think in many ways it's changed for the better in the sense that um, um, uh, when I went, first went into the House of Commons in 1970, um, community politics, as it was called, constituency politics, uh, was still in its infancy. Now I think you find members of Parliament um, who devote themselves to their constituency. And of course, um, uh, with the internet, they have many, many more uh, letters and uh, uh, objections and uh, suggestions uh, uh, to deal with. So I think that members of Parliament, and I think members of the House of Lords, well, certainly members of the House of Lords as well, um, uh, work much harder than before. Where I think uh, politics has been harmed um, is in uh, the growth of the social media. I think that uh, I remember uh, with the uh, COVID crisis. I remember going into uh, Guy's Hospital uh, to get my first jab. Uh, And a photograph of that appeared. Um, Actually, it appeared in the House of Lords magazine, not not nationally, uh, but it got a certain amount of uh, uh, circulation. Um, And then I found that people were uh, getting in, coming in uh, on the social media to say that it had all been posed, that it wasn't a real needle at all that was going in. It was something else. The the idea that I would go all the way to Guy's Hospital to pose uh, for a photograph of having a jab. I mean, it's so extraordinary. And it's that sort of thing that drives me to you know, slight desperation uh, 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 about the social media um, um, at the moment. It's very good in many ways, but my golly, uh, there are some very odd people uh, about at the moment um, who, um, uh, um, who are a peril to navigation in all kinds of ways.
0: We obviously saw, you know, take the extreme of uh, politics on social media, I mean, culminating in those awful scenes of the Capitol building uh, in uh, in Washington uh, and the riots they saw there. Um, since, since what happened in America, has Parliament reviewed security? I mean, obviously, there have been tragic incidents um, around Parliament in the past. Have you been reviewing security uh, in the light of what happened in
3: America? Well, we've obviously taken note of it. We'd be mad not to. Um, we have a slight. We have a different system um, here, and we have very close. I mean, we have our own security people, obviously, but we have also a very close cooperation uh, of the Metropolitan Police. Not quite just cooperation, um, as you well know. Uh, there are Metropolitan Police um, um all around um, in Westminster, uh, but any of these, any of these kind of uh, uh, incidents which take place, uh, we would. Uh, uh, clock, clock into see if there were lessons to be learned and um we would go on from there but you know uh, it's we, we've got quite a good system and I, i'd be mad to say that it is uh foolproof because no security system is entirely foolproof but i don't think that the kind of thing that happened uh, in washington uh, could have happened um at uh, westminster
0: i wanted to uh, to look back because obviously. Um... Law Fawley, you you were before joining the House of Lords. You were a cabinet minister for many years um, in the in the Thatcher government. Two things leapt out to me when I was uh, looking back over it. First of all, your time as Health Secretary, and uh, reflecting particularly while you were Health Secretary, uh, the AIDS crisis uh, erupted in the UK. There's this um, Channel Four documentary. um, uh, It's a uh, not documentary drama. In fact, it's a scene which starts this week, which looks back at that whole. Whole period and a lot of the actors in it. I think Russell T Davies has written. It, there are parallels, inadvertent almost, between the public reaction to that back then and and the public reaction uh, to the coronavirus crisis. What do you remember about that time as health secretary um, when AIDS uh, first emerged and and the government's role in trying to to warn people about
3: it? Oh, what I remember about it was first of all it was a tragic time, and first and secondly. Uh, There was so little initially that we could do about it. We didn't have any drugs um, and we had no vaccine. I mean, we don't have a vaccine now. It's good that we're getting a vaccine uh, uh, for COVID, but we've still got no vaccine as far as uh, HIV um, is concerned. So the only weapon that we had at that stage um, was uh, publicity. Uh, That's why uh, we uh, we sent uh, leaflets to every household in the country that's why we had uh, posters all over the country and advertisements in, uh, in the press and the rest. But it was our only weapon. Um, and that's why I say, I mean, I was fortunate in as much as social media wasn't about, frankly, um, at that time. So I didn't have all, all these, uh, at least didn't have uh, counter uh, um, strikes uh, from uh, from outside. Although I did have, just as Matt Hancock had, I did have lots of alternative theories about what I should uh, be doing. I had people who said, this is entirely a moral issue and that you should go out there and you should uh, um, uh, you should preach what they uh, uh, described as uh, moral issues. My only, my only conclusion from all that, which I think is very much uh, uh, Matthew Hancock's conclusion, is that the safest and the best thing for the public um, is to keep to public health. What is in the best interests of public health? And uh, just as I had, I uh, had a very good man called Donald Acheson, who's the chief medical officer. He's got a very good man called Chris Whitty, who is his chief medical officer. And as long as you keep uh, very close to the medical advice coming from them, then I think that is the best that any health secretary uh, can do in, in any situation.
0: And is it right when you when you launched the first public health campaign warning about AIDS, you had to sort of slightly sneak it past Margaret Thatcher?
3: (laughs) Sneak it past. Yes, we we, it was rather more than sneaking it past. We when we first (laughs) when we first started, um, uh, I wanted to um, warn the uh, public. And there's no point in warning the public in a general uh, way and pulling your punches. So I remember the first advertisement we had was we had something on risky sex and how to avoid it and why you should avoid it. Margaret came back and said, oh, dear, you know, uh, do we really need this thing on risky sex? Well, obviously we did. Otherwise, we weren't going to uh, be communicating um, with anybody. And uh, she was a bit of a peril to navigation, frankly, as far as the AIDS uh, uh, campaign uh, was concerned. She didn't really have her heart um, um, in it. And I remember right at the end of my, well, no, not quite at the end of my period, but I, you, I wanted to have a ministerial broadcast um, on AIDS. And uh, I went to see Margaret, and it was um, New Year's Eve of all times. Um, I tell you, she wouldn't move. So to Have a ministerial broadcast. Um, you needed uh, the prime minister's permission, and she wasn't uh, prepared to do that. And then she said to me, Norman, she said, you mustn't just be known as a minister for AIDS. Now, I totally misinterpreted that by saying, well, obviously she means that I'm going to be Chancellor of the Exchequer in a few weeks' time. She didn't mean that at all. What she actually meant was, Norman, pack up what you're doing and go and do something more useful. Um, I mean, that's a pretty crude way of of, uh, categorising it. Uh, But uh, uh, she didn't have her heart in the AIDS campaign, And when I went, I think you could uh, see a slight contrast between uh, uh, what Paul John Moore uh, was allowed to do and what I just did. Uh, So I did go round her, but it wasn't before we had um, a number of um, uh, conflicts um, on the way. But the greatest thing I had was that uh, we managed to get a special committee, AIDS committee, now a cabinet committee, Normally, the Prime Minister would be in the chair, managed by various means. She wasn't in the chair. Willie Whitelaw was in the chair. Norman Tebbit wasn't there, who was a pretty good sceptic on the whole thing uh, as well. And um, we, from that moment onwards, uh, it became a team. And they bonded together. And we had a really good uh, campaign. I know it was a controversial campaign, but we brought HIV down and we brought sexual uh, disease down. And, you know, I mean, I don't think one could have done much more, frankly, as health secretary at that time.
0: Uh, and, uh, yeah, we'll be able to see how uh, some of that played out in that Channel 4 John. I just want to ask you finally as well. So you, you left being health secretary, became employment secretary. And then you famously uh, resigned to spend more time with your family, That possibly the first person to use that formulation. But you really did just want to spend more time with your family. And it's only later that this has become sort of a euphemism, if you like.
3: Yes, I, I wasn't at all conscious. It was only one phrase or one sentence in my resignation letter. And I wanted to move on. And I did want to spend more time with my uh, two young daughters who were very young and who I had uh, neglected i 'm not sure I hope they think that they were less neglected, but the trouble with being a politician is that you do tend to neglect uh, uh, your family in any event, but uh, I did feel that uh, quite strongly and I had done fifteen years at this stage with Margaret Thatcher, uh, both in opposition and in government, uh, and we 'd had our clashes and we 'd had our battles, uh, but uh, had a lot of respect uh, for her right to the end uh, but uh, your family is most important. I remember Margaret saying to me, uh, because when I went to see her uh, and saying, I'm going, um, she said, uh, Norman, she said, uh, the family is the most important thing. And I think that she very much believed that. And and actually, I believe it. But I don't pretend uh, to be a perfect uh, Uh, A perfect father. And I can hear the applause uh, for that statement uh, coming from my children uh, (laughs) as, as I speak.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the Mumbo Jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bit of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing, uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1, is available on DAB online via Smart Speaker or on the Times radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe.